And just as it kicked my, this uh, studio kicked me to my not good camera, um, we'll just do it from my FaceTime camera. Welcome back to the Big C Church podcast. I'm your host, uh, Dr. Angie Ward, or just Angie. Um, and on this podcast, we have challenging conversations uh, to better the body. Uh, and, and we're in the middle of a series of men and women in the church. And so my guest today is my friend, Pastor Rob Rendell. Rob is a pastor right here in my backyard in Denver. He's the founder and lead pastor of Denver United Church, which really is just up the road. He and I get coffee regularly at a coffee shop just a couple miles in between us. Um, and Rob and I have had over the last about three and a half years since we've gotten to know each other, just a series of great conversations about about this, men and women in the church and in leadership. And um, I just asked if he'd come on and share his journey and process, and we can just have a conversation about that. So um, Rob, it's good to see you on a screen instead of in a coffee shop, although I like the coffee shop ones better. Yes, me too. Good morning, Angie. So happy to be with you and um, to continue and share a little bit um, in these these conversations, as you mentioned, uh, in our church, we refer to them as courageous conversations. And I love the work that God's given you to do, uh, both in your writing uh, and in your leadership. And I appreciate how you've helped me think and helped facilitate and stimulate um, these courageous conversations and others in our church leadership and in our congregation. Yeah, well, it's fun to um, be able to share this uh, on a mic for some others to listen in the hopes that, I, uh, like you and I have talked about, and we'll talk about more, it's just such a, can be such a uh, fraught topic or and so much emotion with it. And, and so um, we'll model what we get to do all the time, which I'm so grateful for. Well, me too. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, so back up, you and I, when we first got to know each other, we kind of just traced our journeys a bit, you know, and so... Um, just do that for, for me and for us. Uh, I know I've heard it already, but I'm not going to recite it because you tell it better. Um, so, uh, kind of your journey in ministry and leadership and with that as a framework for your understanding of men and women. Absolutely. Well, um, my, you know, I was raised by an army colonel and my dad had a, a number of simple maxims that I grew up with. And one was we lead as we prioritize. And uh, our, I'm trying to think of how our relationship formed. I think uh, one of or two of my employees had had you as a perhaps as a professor or encountered right. you uh, right. in their studies yeah. at Denver Seminary. And um, I was seeking out voices in leadership that complemented the types of voices that had been formative, mostly for the better in my professional life. And um, there was a dearth of mothers' voices in in the family in the formative places of my pastoral leadership. And so I, I think I just uh, sort of online stalked you for a bit. And then, and then there are our friendship <laughs> oh, again. Comes out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've just been so grateful for the ways that you think uh, and speak into this subject uh, and others in the body of Christ, the ways that you have these challenging conversations and model for others to do so and the ways that you've given me permission to fumble my way through um, not only gender theology, but the, the practitionership of empowering sure. uh, both men and women and of uh, fielding mothers and fathers' voices in the family of God. My journey uh, of faith began, I, I've had a, 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 
a three-layer sort of sedimentary rock formative ah. journey. I began my my faith life, and I've known Jesus, and I'm grateful for it as long as I can remember, in a traditional New England congregational church, very large, white um, church steeple built in the 1700s, um, mm. and it was principally led by uh, old, you know, it was an old white church building led by old white men. And that was, um, they were good. Uh, my dad was one of them. He was always on the board of this or committee of that. And one of his maxims is, if you're going to be around, make yourself useful. And so he always led and in, in, in was a consummate servant leader. Uh, my mom by his side helping. Um, and I, I just understood that to be how um, Christianity worked by virtue of what I saw in front of me. As a child, I had an experience with evangelical Christianity through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, ended up in a in an evangelical cultured Presbyterian church off my college campus. And yeah. there uh, I, I saw, having met God, uh, the Father, in my childhood, I met Jesus in a personal way, mm. not just as my uh, salvation agent. And so grateful for that. But I also saw leadership uh, principally modeled by uh, older white men. And then in my post-college years, I moved to Colorado Springs because I, I went to college on an army scholarship. So thank you, um, by the way, for the education, the army yes, ROTC. Yeah. <laughs> and then that I paid right. you back, a fellow taxpayer. Yeah, that's right. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. Blowing things up with tanks for four years uh, in Colorado. So that's how I ended up here. And uh, having checked out all the respectable Presbyterian churches in the area, of which there are many in Colorado Springs, I ended up at a large independent charismatic megachurch because that's where the um, the people my age were. And like any self-respecting 22-year-old young Christian male, I wanted to go to church to find Jesus and girls. Uh, and yeah, so... Right. They, <laughs> and people having, exactly like you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so having become acquainted with God the Father and then Jesus the Son, uh, I, I had a, a tryst with the Holy Spirit. And it was, um, it was a, a mostly healthy and balanced uh, expression of Trinitarian theology for which I'm very grateful. And during that time, I also saw and, and didn't really question the, the leadership expression principally dominated by white men. And so th there was pastor this and sister that um, mm. in, in the parlance of that church culture. Um, the common thread among this diverse and, and mostly uh, very life-giving array of church expressions that formed me was that the leadership was was men. And um, it wasn't until the Lord put it in my heart and my wife's heart to plant a church in Denver, realizing that in Colorado Springs, there was one of Christian everything and an hour north where the people and the money and the yeah. influence resided. Um, the city was being left to go to hell and the church was fleeing like the plague. The churches were thriving mm -hmm. outside the 470, you know, uh, in the suburbs, but in the city, it was shriveling yeah. and church buildings were being sold off and turned into marijuana dispensaries, bars, climbing gyms, that kind of yeah. thing. Well, yeah. in planting a church, um, for the first time, I was confronted with polity as, as I saw it. These were boundaries that weren't that I wasn't asked to address and thus didn't think a lot about. And mm. when you start something from scratch, as you know, as an entrepreneur in any sphere, um, it's not only 
your access, but it's your responsibility. It's incumbent upon you uh, to draw those lines. And so for the first time, I had to think through uh, our my own gender theology as pertained especially to the leadership of the church. And that's where the uh, the growth journey for me really began. Yeah. Well, now, um, you know, I know Maura, your wife, a uh, wonderful leader. So like um, in this kind of assumed waters that you swam in before, did you have conversations with her? Or how did she factor into this before coming here to New Denver? Or Denver so United, think, you're not New Denver. They all have something Denver in them. That's right. And I love that oh, yeah. because that speaks to a calling to the city. Uh, For sure. And, and, uh, I love it. I'm so grateful to be a part of that. Uh, I think principal to God's work in my life has been my wife, Mari, because um, her calling as a pastor and her gifting as a leader are undeniable. And um, in the interest not only of right theology, but of domestic tranquility uh, on, on the local, most local <laughs> sense, um, it, these conversations were not optional. Um, yeah. and the more that I read and the more that I spoke, uh, with people whom I trusted, who had a broader and, and perhaps more well-developed gender theology, the more I became uncomfortable with the tacit gender theology, which the waters that I had learned to swim in, as you alluded to, um, sort of provided for me and, um, where my wife was, she was gracious not to, to, um, to push or drag or uh, assault me over, um, but prayed in, and invited me into conversation. And um, it occurred to me that um, there are just a small handful of metaphors that God goes to in revealing himself to us as creation and, the, and his covenant community. And from beginning to end, Angie, in the scriptures, God's go-to image for the household of faith, for the, the covenant community of his people in whatever era and conception is family, right? God calls himself father. We take that for granted, but he could have called himself anything. And uh, 10 or 12 would have made a lot more sense intuitively, like, you know, uh, emperor, uh, yeah. lord, galactic potentate, things that would more exactly uh, represent his not only his supremacy, but the, the vast difference between him and us. And instead, he revealed himself in a personal, intimate way. Jesus called his followers brothers. He said, I don't call you servants like rabbis did with their pupils, but I call you friends. He invited his brothers into life and family life. The Apostle Paul, in building the New Testament church, referred over and over again to these budding congregations as the household of God. Family from beginning to end is God's descriptor for his covenant community. And I can only believe that that's intentional. And so what occurred to me, the question that that requires is healthy families not only benefit from, but really require at least in their optimal expression. And this is with all honor and respect toward single parents, but healthy families optimally feature healthy and empowered fathers and mothers' voices. 
And so what I saw and what was tacitly presented to me as what right looks like in church leadership and what I read in scripture just didn't square. And that created a bit of, a, of an internal theological crisis for me at just the right time, because one only gets to form the theology of a church once or maybe twice in his life. And so yeah. um, thus began the journey that culminated in recognizing that the distinctives um, of, of language, pastor this and sister that, the, the pastoral leader of this ministry and the director of that that broke along gender lines were man-made and rooted not in good theology in my judgment, but in, in tradition, in uh, what's comfortable and in how we've seen it done and in, in a culture's preference for uh, a way of expressing leadership. And I say this with zero desire to judge the church or our culture for that matter, but rather with uh, a desire to judge my own heart and leadership in the church that God has given me to lead. Yeah. Well, um, uh, well, it raises a couple different questions, but first I want to just point out uh, what I observed is, um, and you talked about Maury and how she was gracious and patient and, and um, you didn't, didn't beat you up or anything, but I remember having a conversation just with her at lunch where she was very much in process too. Like, uh, you know, she, like she didn't just come and go, this is how it is. Come around to my way of thinking. It seemed right. like it was a shared or, or uh, parallel processes where she was going, probably had made some assumptions uh, in a different direction and also went like, no, wait, I need to figure out what my foundation is for this as well. Right. She swam in waters that were similar as pertains to gender theology and uh, church leadership, as I did. Different cultural experience. Um, but we yeah. both had, had a similar starting point in this conversation. She knew the witness of the Holy Spirit and how God had wired her. Yeah. And um, that, was, that was the difference between us. But you're right. We were both on a journey of figuring it out. The time that, Angie, I remember this um, breaking the surface of my consciousness and not mm -hmm. leaving me alone was this. I was preparing to leave the church that I found and met my wife in, the, the, the large, um, I mean, it's, when I say large, at its peak, it was 15,000, 16,000. It was yeah. less of a big church and more of a, like a small town on the north side of Colorado Springs. And I'm grateful for it. I ended up uh, as an associate pastor there, spent uh, 10 years at that church, eight of the happiest of my life, went through a yeah. leadership scandal yeah. that were uh, character building, as my dad might say. Yeah, <laughs> but that's one way to put it. Yeah. Through those 10 years, um, the Lord formed and prepared and then called me. And that church, even after that difficult um, turn in the road, sent us out sacrificially and, and uh, planted us in Denver. During that time, the year of transition and preparation, I met with one of the senior leaders and um, I, I, he was asking me, had I thought through my polity? And, and I had, I loved- Is this the senior leaders at the church you're leaving or with the group that you're starting? Yeah, sorry, this is at the church that was sending us out. Okay. Uh, very yep. loving, very supportive. This was the new leadership that um, came in After and succeeded yeah. the, the leader yeah. um, who went through crisis. And my point in mentioning that was simply that the church chose leaders that, you know, reflected their values. And, and, and these are good men. We didn't know each other very well, but they recognized that God had begun this work in us and wanted to see it through to completion. Um, 
And so he was asking me, had I thought through our church governance? And I had extensively. I, I kind of geek out on that stuff. So I really enjoyed writing bylaws and, and doctrinal statements and things like that. Uh, one only gets into the firmware, you know, the, the, the app that you have to like enter your password twice to yeah. mess with every so often in his yeah, pastoral and Usually career. it's when it's really broken, not that's right. crash. That's right. right. Like, oh man, this stuff doesn't work. Yeah. To, this was a uh, this was the consummate measure twice and cut once season yeah. of my professional life. So uh, I was all in for that, and I, I felt like it, it was time for a courageous conversation. And so I shared with him. This was my direct oversight that um, much of what I had learned and experienced, I, I would replicate or ad- adapt, and really valued that there was one area that I, I was mm-hmm. going to depart from uh, what I had experienced here, and that was that. I envisioned and felt the Lord lead me to uh, have elders who were both men and women and share just a very simple version of what I just shared with you, that it seems that these are um, the the heads of the family, the, the representatives of the tribes. In fact, when you look at the Apostle Paul's qualifications for church leadership, they have much less to do with our corporate preparation and much more to do with how good we are at doing family. Right. Mm. Um, it, it's husband of one wife. It's um, kids who, who are responsible and respectable and um, things like that. Now, that's not to say that being the CEO of just one corporation is invaluable experience, but his principal concern seemed to be life in the family. And so in, in so sharing, I got to the point that I let him know we would have female as well as male elders, which was an anathema in that culture. And his response to me wasn't, um, I mean, it obviously was pushback. It was gracious, but it wasn't like, I want to, I want to wrangle theologically a little bit. It was, well, how's that going to really work? Have you really thought that through? Like, you know, when you sit, when you go on a retreat with your elders and you're, you're getting the vision from God and you're sitting around in the hot tub and smoking the cigars, wouldn't that be kind of different or weird to have a, you know, a a woman there? Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't heard this story. Wow. And so, and I, I say this with a desire to honor. And so I'm kind of trying to back into the tent, you know, like, like yeah. Noah's kids. Um, but I was, I was dumbfounded. And I, so I didn't say anything. I was like, yeah, well, that would be challenging. Yeah. And I'll just have to think through what I do. Should I ever want yeah. to smoke cigars in a hot tub with my elders, which <laughs> 15 years in, Angie, I've not done. And the oh. church seems to be doing all right. Um <laughs> But what the point that that makes is that the, 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 I realized that this was primarily a matter of tradition mm-hmm. and preference, not a matter of theology, and certainly not a matter of inner circle, non-negotiable, die-on-the-hill absolutes of theology. You know, theology is like a bullseye target. I, I say this to the, to the seminary professor, with the center being the absolute non-negotiable heaven and yeah, hell truths. Sure interpretations here, deductions here, and then culture, traditions, preferences, norms out here. That's the realm that I realized this essential matter that speaks not only to the health of the body, if indeed family is God's ideal, but to more than half statistically of the people who would comprise my congregation. And I wasn't comfortable relegating that decision or that consideration to the realm of norms, traditions, and preferences akin to the color of the carpet or pews versus chairs or drums versus organs. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, so, so it broke to the surface for you there in that conversation, but then you really did have to start living this out and, 
and put in, you know, putting some legs to this in real life in a real church plant and, and kind of building it, you know, as you're processing and, and flying all that. So, um, first of all, was it, uh, was it a hard shift for you when you came to this realization or was it more like, Oh wait, Oh, I just kind of, uh, what was that like for you internally? It was the latter. It was, it was the kind of thing that you realized I didn't know till I knew. And once okay. I did, there was no consternation. There was no hand wringing. There was no troubled soul. Um, I, I literally never looked back kind of like the call to ministry, the application has been more challenging because yeah. it, it asks something of us as leaders and it asks something of us as men. Very much like the movement toward racial justice in the church asks mm -hmm. something of us uh, that that is giving a little bit of the, the pie of power away that we didn't realize we had enjoyed the totality of, right? Yeah. And so um, it was a shifting of norms, which has been a journey I have has been thrilling, but also has been um, unsettling at times. Having women elders, I never questioned and the church benefited from from day one on in all the ways that you would say, of course, because I believe that God intended the church to function as a family and not just model that. Um, as a metaphor for leadership. And the family does indeed function better when there are healthy mothers and father's voices rightly ordered in front of and behind the church. Well, with elders and inviting the shared leadership that scripture models uh, and the accountability to that, I was held accountable. And I was asked graciously uh, some difficult mm -hmm. questions about uh, whom mm -hmm. I hired and how and um, who spoke and why, and um, at each layer of leadership, as my belief and our church's practice be became established, the rabbit hole got deeper. Mm -hmm. And so the journey just began there. It wasn't an open and shut case any more than racial justice in the church was in 2021 when all the evangelical churches raced out to find a a, a, a black guest speaker to say yeah. we're we're not racist, right? That's that's valuable. Um, but the the words on uh, a document are only as meaningful as mm -hmm. they describe not only the theology of the church but its organizational culture. And I would say the theological evolution was the easier and clearer, mm -hmm. but the evolution of organizational culture was the longer and, and harder road for me, not because I was unwilling, but because you don't know what you don't know and you don't know yeah. what you enjoy. I mean, the word that's used for this in the discussion around race by which I'm drawing a parallel is privilege. You don't know as a man, what things you've taken for granted until you're sharing uh, the leadership and a little sharing asks for why not, why not more? Why not more equitable sharing of leadership? And I think that's uh, one of the places, I mean, we had met before, but I think that's one of the places where we are, we really intersected and started talking regularly because, uh, you know, you, you told me that you, you felt that like, I don't know what I don't know. And I don't want to make a mistake based on what I don't know, basically. <laughs> that's right. right. Do you remember, Angie, one of the first questions I asked you in our coffee shop 
uh, after the get to know you time was, and, and I felt like, to be frank, this is so funny in, in retrospect, but I kind of felt like Nicodemus slinking out under the cover of yeah. Nightfall to ask you questions about this subject, because these conversations were just so impossible. They, they weren't yeah. just not permitted. They were anathema in, in all the worlds uh, of good Christianity from which I had come. And so yeah. I remember asking you this. All right, Angie, I've got women who are elders. I've got women who are pastors. I've got women who are preachers and sharing and leadership and, and exercising of authority. And I think the, th- the church is benefiting from and thriving. And I see so many um, gifted leaders in, in our church rising up who are women and recognizing the permission and, and the and the invitation and the mandate that this l- leadership expression is giving them. But I'm bumping into something. And mm-hmm. a, now that I have women and men, not just as I saw it in the church, quick aside, the church I came from, the waters in which I swam previously, um, the, the men, the, well, let me say it this way. There, there was a, a, an office row of doors, you know, all glass so that there was no hint of impropriety. And those were all men. And then there was a row that uh, was a, uh, parallel to them on the other side of the hallway that was all cubicles. And those were the oh, secretaries. And it was all women. And that's just the way it was. Now that probably reflects an era of corporate leadership in America as well. Um, I had a staff at this point when you and I met five years ago that with the pastors and the support staff were both men and women by uh, organized by calling and gifting. Now I had to work harder to find uh, the pa- and identify the pastors who were women because the, the there hadn't been as many growing in the garden that I harvested mm-hmm. from. Um, yeah. You know, the majority of the qualified candidates that were on my radar screen were white men. And so yeah. empowering women and empowering leaders of color has been a, a similar journey and that I had to look harder. And, and so here we were. I was somewhat, somewhat proud of a team that was led by men and women according to their gifting and calling. But what I fa- I had some of uh, a couple of the trusted young women on my team had expressed dissatisfaction in an inequity around the way that the the they were treated perhaps not that they were treated poorly or discriminated against exactly but i would take the young men pastors out regularly once a month for lunch and mm-hmm. talk about their lives and uh, and connect in a personal relational way and i wouldn't do that maybe i'd get the the ladies together in a group periodically but i wouldn't do that with the ladies and i i realized that there was an assumption from what I had experienced, again, the tradition and culture that informed my theology and practice of church leadership coming into this um, this church season. And that was that the men would get together with the men. And it was justified by we would talk about, you know, man things and accountability dynamics. And it would be inappropriate, perhaps, to be seen alone at lunch with, with a woman. And so there wasn't an a, there was a justification for not making an effort. And I remember asking you, Angie, is that right? Like, should I meet with the, my women pastors the way I meet with my men pastors? And can I take them to lunch? And I remember you looking at me and trying so hard not to be like belittling and, and you were so gracious and honoring. Oh, like, (laughs) okay. And you said, well, yes, you should. And yes, you can. And if the questions are around propriety, then address propriety, but don't not engage 
your female staff the way you would your male staff at all uh, and, and, and call it propriety and sort of put yourself on a moral pedestal for it. And I, I realized that all the work that I had done up to this point was still um, so incomplete because the culture was being formed. The organizational culture was being designed by the, the, the choices that I made not only in hiring, but in interaction and in development of leaders. Yeah, well, it functionally, in, in, in one way, was still cigars in a hot tub, mm-hmm. right? Not to that extreme, but, but right. well, you know, you're doing this thing with them and the women are feeling one thing. And um, yeah, and so we, I remember we talked about, well, then you could also meet with the men differently. You know, it's like, what, right. you know, instead right. of not meet with the women. Or we talked about, I think, um, uh, one I think was reframing it to this brother sister thing. Right. Right. You know, that was a piece of it. And also getting, uh, um, the, the woman's spouse, like talking with them and just having right. really just like you said, deflating the balloon, taking the air of the balloon. Cause it just felt at, when you came to me, I could just feel the tension that you were feeling internally about this because it was so so stre- so tense still for you with right. because of all this that you've just described. And I, I realized that a lot of that tension was rooted in a confusing of culture, tradition, and preference mm. with propriety. And a culture preference was dressed up in moral clothes, right? Mm. And so it was masquerading as taking the moral high ground, not to get together with women or, or whatever. Uh, but really what it was, was a culture, uh, an organizational culture of misogyny. And it was mm. just excused and then um, validated by um, uh, by that sense of propriety. And that's the way it was always taught. Um, yeah. And and that just began to ring really hollow. I, I, I actually took your advice and I've talked with you about one of my young leaders, uh, the very sharpest that I've ever had the chance to, to lead. Uh, and she um, and I have a, a great developmental leadership and pastoral relationship, but I am friends with her husband. And he actually, he and I and another brother share a, uh, share season tickets to the nuggets. And so we Mm -hmm. spend time regularly together and I've just simply talked with him and her and with him and said, Hey, this is my professional relationship with your wife and this, and you and I are friends. And the, the, the trust among brothers is the surest safeguard and accountability at the same time for the professional relationship and allows for a degree of personal relationship in the office and in that professional development context that's appropriate. And there's never been a hint of impropriety in anybody's mind. Um, yeah. And so it's one more, one more evidence of just taking the system and if it ain't broke, breaking it. Yeah. Question. Yeah, I remember you were telling me about this, you know, this family that was, uh, you know, from up North and you were, you said, we do everything. We were camping with them and stuff. And I said, well, would you, you're feeling this trepidation about some of your staff women. And then I said, but would you go somewhere in a car with this guy, this guy's wife? You said, yeah, because we're like, we're family. And I was right. like, but we're family. 
Right. So you basically said back to me, you echoed, held up a mirror and showed me if you believe what you say and what you've built the church on, if the theology is indeed that the church is many things, but foremost, it's a family and healthy families require healthy mothers and fathers, voices, aunties and uncles, uh, grandparents, etc., then um, shouldn't the boundaries and directives, guidelines that influence your relationship within the family guide and influence your relationship within the church? And the answer has been a resounding yes. And God's blessed in so many ways. Well, yeah. So this was, you know, several years ago that we had that conversation. So, um, and I think, you know, we, that was kind of right in the middle of the pandemic as well. So there's a lot of transition going on, but yeah. So now you've been living into this. So, what has it been like? What what resistance have you faced internally, externally, processed? What other realizations? What's that been like as you're you're living into making those things match? Right. You? Well, the, there was certainly um, some passive resistance that um, was ones and twos, and felt like this is the cost of the call and manageable, but the most concerted resistance I experienced was in that year, 2021. And I, I have to confess, I'm still not totally sure how much of this is the, the matter at hand and how much of this is that we were all in our feelings for the entirety of 2021. Yeah, and it was like, I've, I've, it's been 10 years since I've had a quality offense about something. So I'm going to get offended about you now. And I, I can't break up with like the government. I can't right. break up with my mask. So I'm going to break up with you. And so people were breaking yeah. up with their libraries, with their kids' soccer teams. Everyone was looking for someone. They were like, I'm going to go to a different yoga class. Gosh, darn it. So everyone That's was right. breaking up with everything that they could to have a That's sense right. of sort of personal control. Um, mm. And cause we were all just, the, the, the racial justice movement that reignited during the the first half of 2021 that was so important yeah. for our country and I think resulted in a shift of the, the sort of moral center of gravity in America uh, also mm -hmm. just spilled over into the political context, which is a separate subject, but uh, had everybody tender and, and matters that we would discuss delicately as mature adults became so inflamed that it was like when you sprain your ankle playing basketball, you can't even get an x-ray until you get the swelling down. That said, yeah. I've had a couple of years to get the swelling down and yeah. learn what happened. And um, during that time, I, um, not because of the pandemic, but because of the journey that we've been discussing and how it happened that we were at the, the most, um, mature place of expression of our of our belief as a church as to what we were and what God had asked us to function like that I had in fact this same young leader on my team that I was just referring to um begin to speak regularly in the church she's mm -hmm. she's gifted and and has a, a great theological mind a great pastoral heart and is a a really capable communicator and I think it's important for the church, especially at times that are leader centric, to recognize that the church isn't a man or a woman for that matter, or any person. It's Jesus who's the head of the church. And the number one way we we communicate that is by safeguarding against the slide, the slouch into celebrity pastor, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I had um, had this young pastor preach before, but at this time uh, where everybody was perhaps a little more in our feelings or a little less um, resistant to 
um, yeah. offense. Uh, a couple of leaders who were elders in our church expressed to me um, in, in, in more obtuse language than I was used to, but, but kind of in a casually dismissive or matter of fact way, displeasure with mm-hmm. not just her leadership, but that she was leading, not, not the, the content that she was communicating or the leadership she was providing. That didn't seem to be the, the point of pause, but rather that she was providing it. And so I met and, uh, you know, came with curiosity and practiced my emotionally healthy spirituality and said, can you help me understand where you're coming from? Uh, and, and it, where uh, he was coming from to me was a, a, an unrighteous place. And so, um, resisting the impulse to just break up like everybody was doing, you know, that's so 2021. I thought let's, so I I offered, let's get together over the course of this year. We're all stuck in our homes and limited to what we can do and meet on the back porch and drink lemonade and have a Bible study about this. And we studied through gender theology together, me and a a older white male uh, who loves Jesus and loves his church um, and was used to it, it being done kind of a way. And I believe the scripture doesn't need a ton of selling, but we came to um, a place that was very difficult to reason out of with regard mm-hmm. to even in a complementarian um, perspective, the the righteous mandate for mothers and fathers, leadership voices in the family of God. And basically it ended with, well, I still don't think it's right. And what I heard was what sadly uh, has come loudly from much in the evangel much of the evangelical community in the last couple of years, which is I want to come together. I want diversity, whether it be ethnic, racial, gender, um, generational, or otherwise. Let's all come together and do it my way. Is that good for you, Angie? Mm-hmm. Can we just come together? Let's. I mean, I don't want you not there. Uh, I, I just yeah, want to come together and do it in a way that I'm used to and comfortable with. And I had to, I, there was a point where I felt like God asked me, are you going to be intimidated? Are you going to prefer somebody who is a pillar in the church, who is wealthy and um, Mm. uh, influential, or are you going to stand up for what I have been leading you toward? And so I did, and they left and it made a bit of a stink. And it was in a, in a less um, perhaps exemplary or mature way than, than I would have wished Um, that influenced and and sort of brought the subject along with other causes for consternation uh, to the forefront, and uh, and we had a bit of a our our church's little uh, experience of a a bit of an exodus, you know. Yeah. Um, so now it's getting real. It's not just theoretical. Yeah, it was costly, stuff. right? And yeah. these are people that yeah. have been that not just uh, influencers in the church, but influencers in my life. You know, I, I felt a little melodramatically like David, you with whom I had shared bread at my table. You know, these are men yeah. that I had sought out as mentors in, in different yeah. ways uh, and was so was so saddened and disappointed, yet um, never felt more certain about the 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 composition of Jesus's church and the expression of his heart for it. Um, The last phase, uh, and maybe I, I, I should let you ask me about it if it's of interest, but I realized that the rabbit hole, it always got a little deeper. And um, yeah. women as elders, women as pastors, 
women as communicators, women as decision makers um, behind the scenes, women. Um, like you were going beyond a few token. And you and I talked about how some of the first ones were going to have the hardest time because you were uh, still, you had your cigars in a hot tub, not, you know, as a, as a metaphor for like, you had, you had envisioned your way. And so the first ones, you guys had a, just some bumps that you talked about, honestly, with the women you know, and going like, hey, we're new at this. We're going to bumble around a little bit for this kind of thing, um, right. which I, I thought was great. But but then you start like then it starts becoming almost a tipping point. Right. Where it's like, it's just the norm. Right. And the you norm pioneers, And then it's like it's becoming the culture. It's interesting that I think where I first began to notice that. Um, the. Mothers and fathers' voices in the family wasn't a token gesture. It wasn't um, a, a throwing of a bone or any sort of concession. Uh, it was the culture. The first time I, I had that fed back to me was when, that I recall, was when I um, found that fast forward a year down the road from the conversation about, or a couple of years down the road from the conversation about, you know, mentorship and leadership development and pastoral um, influence in the lives of the, the women pastors alongside the men pastors on my staff was when they took me up on my offer. I said, look, I am going to, um, I'm going to be indelicate at times. I'm going to try to be delicate, but I'm, um, this is, this is going to be a little clunky. And that's because of where I am in space and time and who I am. I'm trapped inside of myself at the end of the day. And so what I'm telling you is I, I wish for it to be less clunky and more comfortable. I believe it will next generation than it is this generation, but I, I believe it will be less so next year than it is this year if you're willing mm -hmm. to engage this with me. Mm -hmm. And I invited them to have courageous conversations and they took me up on it without, um, you know, the, the uh, any of what men sometimes in, in, in closed company will imply is the reasons why we can't do that, of course, because women are going to, you know, they're going to badger us or going to, um, you know, the, the stereotypes. Um, yeah. And, and what I found was that the female pastors on my staff engaged the courageous conversation with greater maturity and comfort than I did because they were mm -hmm. more used to, the awareness around this inequity than I was mm -hmm. and came to me and said, Hey, can we ask for this? Um, like we have men who come from the outside alongside you that you look to for leadership and offer mentorship and um, input to us uh, as to our young men. Can we ask for that? And mm -hmm. the more that, that they felt comfortable and it went naturally that they would um, speak up, the more I realized this is becoming culture. And I discovered that the final frontier, at least as yet for me, was that we had revisited our governance with regard to eldership, staff, and even the requirement that the lead pastor be a man. Uh, went mm -hmm. through a process with our elders and discussed that. And prayerfully um, in with the... Um, advice and consent of our overseeing elders, our translocal outside governing uh, group, changed our doctrinal position in our bylaws, removing that requirement. And the last frontier was that our overseers, the if you want to loosely correlate our governance to the 
the three branch model of the US government, as Thomas Jefferson put it, the least bad form of human governance that we've right. yet discovered because a triangle is a little bit um, less prone to a tug of war than king and parliament. Well, the overseers would be like the um, the judiciary. They're technically, you know, apolitical and they're above the fray um, in the American experiment. And our overseers, our elders in our church, who like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas later in life, you know, had a variety of different responsibilities in the body, one of which was giving translocal eldership to the church in Thessalonica. And so those were all men and prescribed as all men, presumably because the senior pastor was prescribed as a man, but without ever having been um, thought through. And so um, we changed that pretty easily. The doctrine's easier to change than the practice and the culture. And I began praying um, for a, a mother's voice to be a mentor to me, which is one part of our overseer's role, and to be um, a, a 30,000 foot safeguard and influencer voice from the big C church, to borrow uh, the, the uh, well-used well phrase, yeah, that's right. <laughs> to influence my staff and our congregation. And um, I realized that the only thing worse than not having a, an equitable expression of leadership at every layer is having a token expression or, you know, mm. um, a, a, an obligatory one. And the Lord reminded me that I had a friend, mentor, and trusted leader that lived uh, a coffee shop away, uh, whom he had been using in my life to, to mm. form me and form our church into what he envisioned it to be. And as you know, and to share with our listeners over the last year, you entered a process with the elders of Denver United and, um, a couple months ago, finalized that and agreed to be the first female overseer for Denver United. And I'm so grateful to you for that. I'm so proud of our church and our elders mm -hmm. for that. And so hopeful for um, the future of this little church and, and whatever modicum of influence on Jesus's church that um, he might give it. So thank yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I just love that Denver United, you, you know, starting with your leadership and modeling and Mari uh, are are willing to to wrestle and to enter in the mud, you know, and, and just kind of the messy. And when I had din or lunch with, uh, you know, the elders that who interviewed me, the, those men and women, we just, you know, they, they're several of them were new elders as well. So they were still getting a feel for what this all looks like. And um, but we are able to just all speak frankly about here's what's working. Here's some areas we need to work on. Here's, and, and any, any leadership that's willing to enter into the mess. I just, you know, so respect that. And yeah, I'm drawn to that. You know, I think as leaders, we think, well, people are going to see the sausage being made. That's ugly or whatever, but I think right. healthy leaders, healthy people are drawn to that willingness to engage in that. Right. Ultimately clunky conversations or, um, inconvenient conversations, courageous conversations or challenging ones, however we term them, um, what they share is vulnerability yeah. and transparency. The willingness to um, walk uncharted territory or uncomfortable and um, territory that we haven't mastered and to do it in front of people. And I think that's the kind of leader Jesus was and the kind of leader he, he asks for in his church. Yeah. And that's what I love about 
our friendship, our now, you know, partnership, at least, you know, to some point at Denver United is that we've always just been able to sit down and kind of go, well, okay, well, we're still here. Let's do it. Absolutely. Let's sort through it. So you, I want to go back just a little bit. You talked about uh, briefly that your church, uh, you know, the elders said, okay, we can have a woman as a senior pastor. When that was decided, was there any, at any point, any twinge or fear of uh, loss or potential loss? Or did you feel power leave your body? I mean, like, what was, was there anything in that for you personally? You know, was it a natural step at that point? It's a fascinating question, um, and it's one I haven't given a ton of thought to. Um, but to be honest, I, I felt elated. It was uh, mm. among the easiest and most obvious decisions, major decisions that we've made. It was, if anything, I think, Angie, I felt a little embarrassed that that was in there. And I had for, I had forgotten. It was, you know, we had written the bylaws 10 years before, and in reading through them, one of our elders said, what's the, didn't say, Hey, this is wrong, or this is incongruous with who we've become or where we're going, but came with curiosity and said, what's the, what's the rationale for this? And I said, I, I, I I have to say, I, I I don't know that I have a good rationale for it by, by the theology that we've held out. uh, I don't, I do think that there is first Timothy two. Right. And so that's where most churches, I don't mean to say that this is so obvious, um, most churches that have have male leadership prescribed um, invoke First Timothy 2, which is there. And we and it is a difficult passage and we um, don't uh, good students of the scripture don't have the luxury of omitting certain portions of scripture because they're difficult or inconvenient. I also came to the rather ready, ready conclusion that God did inspire the scripture author to write, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, period. That's been said. It's there. Now, there's lots of culture context um, to be applied to this. And I think it's it's not wrong. I think much of it is very right. But I think the, the, the easier landing spot for me is, is even simpler. And that is that um, that sentence is there. It says it. We got to deal with that. It also says that women can't style their hair, wear, wear jewelry, or sit with their husbands or speak in the church. Yeah, and covering my it, earrings. It, right? And it concludes yeah. with this fantastic verse that women will be saved through childbirth. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And what does that mean? I'm fine with a literal interpretation. In fact, I have a quirky admiration for traditions that try to interpret it all literally. And, you know, the, there's no hairstyles and jewelry. And I don't know what to say about being saved through childbirth because that seems to bump into one of the most absolute of doctrines. But um, the fact is, I don't think we as uh, I don't think basic hermeneutics allows us to pick and choose which verses in the same paragraph we're going to apply literally and which verses mm-hmm. we're going to apply culture context to like the jewelry the speaking with the husband the, at home the the mm-hmm. hairstyles and certainly salvation through childbirth we we interpret more liberally through culture or theological context right um that's fine but to pick this one verse right in the middle verse eight and say we're going to interpret that one literally while these on either side we're going to interpret through cultural or theological context. What that belies is 
a preference toward misogyny. We're going to interpret this one literally because we want to, because dad and granddad before him did. And that I cannot abide. And when I shared that with the elders, I said, somebody show me where I'm wrong. Now, I don't know what exactly it means or what to do with it. I believe there is a culture context. God did see fit to author the scripture through humans who were very much operating in real time. And this was the Wild West real time, the realest of real time in the first generation of the church. But I don't claim to have the the absolute interpretation on a passage that people have been dickering over for 2000 years. What I know is it's theologically and intellectually dishonest to take this one literal and the rest of these figuratively. It just doesn't square. And to me, the only explanation is misogyny. It's a preference toward a a, a tradition that Mm -hmm. keeps it our way, that tilts the ground in favor of of one leader and away from another. And so I, I said, if if we need this to be literal, we've got some explaining to do on the rest. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. we don't need the rest to be literal, we're going to appeal to the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth around those confusing passages. Let's do the same with this one. And mm-hmm. the rest of the body of of scriptural evidence that's far less confusing and inconclusive that the church be a family that healthy families optimally feature mothers and fathers voices that in christ there is no male or female mm-hmm. and and let's have integrity in our in our organizational inmost being and yeah. it was unanimous so is that in a um you know final question or uh, constellation of questions. Is that the advice? I mean, if, if there's other people who are men and women who are, you know, maybe sitting in this kind of soupy, uh, you know, asking questions or wondering how to, you know, the cigars in the hot tub, is it, is it that, is it the integrity question or what, what words would you have as someone who's, you've been modeling this process? I would say choose first, uh, how important settling those inconclusive matters is to you. Invariably, when I talk to younger pastors who are planting churches and sorting through these things, most of whom have come, at least from my ilk, from churches that um, that were led and, and the doctrine informed as mine was, it's difficult to get over that hump, that First Timothy 2 hump and all that all the culture and tradition that go with it. And I I guess I would say, if you need to be certain or to grapple with the uncertainty and can't abide it on theological difficulties, don't be a pastor, be a theologian. We need Mm -hmm. good minds and hearts in ivory towers, helping us um, work out our salvation in fear and trembling. If you want to be a pastor and that's what you understand God has called you to be, Prepare for a life of uncertainty, of Mm. making practical decisions in gray areas, in murky waters, uh, that requires vulnerability, transparency, Mm. and humility. And often saying, you know what? That's a great question. I don't know. I believe the Holy Spirit when he said he, I I believe Jesus when he said the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. So let's seek him. He said, if we seek, we'll Mm -hmm. find. Will you seek me, seek him over this with me for our Mm -hmm. church? Let's hold these things loosely. 
agree that we're going to die on the hill of the non-negotiable absolutes, which there may be seven or eight of that evangelicals agree on or people who who flow from the evangelical waters. Um, and then the rest, let's agree to hold loosely and say, I don't. I, I'm not a theological stud. I don't have the corner on the market of truth. I don't know what to do about the braids and the jewelry and the permitting of women to to speak or have authority. I do believe that God wanted us to interpret these passages in the context primarily in which they were written and secondarily in ours for them there and for us now in that order. I think otherwise he wouldn't have given us visibility into the context. I think that that's important. But to to, uh, to lead a church is to hold these things loosely, walk in humility, transparency, and vulnerability. And if you can't do that around these issues and others, then be a theologian and help us figure it out. Yeah. Wow. So good. Well, um, Rob, thanks for, I mean, I'm always just grateful for your friendship, for your true brotherhood in Christ and Maury's, you know, sisterhood. And I'm excited. I know in uh, a few weeks after we're recording this, I'm going to be spending time uh, at Denver United with your folks and kind of, uh, you know, introducing myself to them and, and being joining that brotherhood and sisterhood, that family, that household of faith. Um, and so thanks for every time we get together and, and being willing to hit record on this one. Well, the privilege is mine. Thank you. Thank you for bearing with me and uh, for your friendship, for your mentorship in this area, but in so many areas of my life and leadership. Thank you for your contribution to the body of Christ in the work, the courageous conversations that you are having and modeling and permitting for us. Uh, Just so grateful for you, Angie. Thank you. Thank you.